This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Open Source Property by Stephen Clowney, James Grimmelman, Michael Grinberg, Jeremy Sheff, and Rebecca Tushnet. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Property Lectures. This is part five. In this lecture, we'll be talking about use. Two neighboring owners may wish to make use of their land in ways that are incompatible. Use by one would interfere with or prevent use by the other. Property law regulates these types of competing uses in various ways. The common law of nuisance purports to set standards by which one owner can prevent the desired use of another. Owners can agree among themselves to regulate their uses and have those agreements enforced not only between themselves, but between all subsequent owners of the affected land. Such private land use restrictions are known as servitudes. One type of servitude, an easement, provides one owner a right to use the other's land. Another type of servitude, a restrictive covenant, provides one owner the right to prevent neighboring landowners from using their land in particular ways. Covenants can even be used to bind entire communities in mutual and reciprocal schemes of privately regulated land uses, that is, the common interest community. Governments are also heavily involved in regulating potentially conflicting land uses, enacting zoning schemes to confine potentially conflicting uses to separate areas of their jurisdiction, and imposing restrictions on the legal uses of property, though the scope of this power is limited by the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment to the Federal Constitution. In each of these systems for regulating incompatible uses, 
Disputes will lead to someone having their wishes fulfilled and someone else finding their desires frustrated. As we discuss these issues, pay attention to how each of these legal doctrines picks winners and losers, how they set the conditions according to which some uses can receive more favorable treatment than others, and most importantly, how they allocate the power to decide when a particular condition for favoring or disfavoring a particular use is satisfied. Now turning to nuisance, people want to use land for different things. We've already seen how the resulting conflicts provide a rationale for property rights. In the so-called tragedy of the commons, for example, each cattle owner has an incentive to use the pasture for grazing before someone else beats him or her to it. The race to consume leaves the pasture depleted, and everyone worse off. Property rights are one, but by no means the only, mechanism for addressing the problem. As an individual owner may have the necessary incentive to ensure that the plot is not overconsumed. Likewise, property rights enable owners to manage their holdings free from external interference. The farmer may plant her corn even though her neighbor wishes a hotel were there. And property rights facilitate the reconciliation of incompatible interests without outside intervention. Determining whether Blackacre is better off as a hotel or a farm might be a hard call for an outside regulator. But with enough money, the would-be hotel owner may simply buy out the farmer, or vice versa. This hardly exhausts the universe of potential disputes. As we have already seen, disputes may emerge within property boundaries. One joint tenant may want to use a pond for irrigation, the other for fishing. Property law provides another set of management mechanisms for this kind of disagreement, that is, partition actions. Likewise, the law of leaseholds has its own set of doctrines for managing the inevitable battles of the landlord-tenant relationship. Here, we are interested in conflicts that arise between neighboring property owners. The collision is not within an ownership interest, but between such interests. My desire to open a factory may be incompatible with my neighbor's desire for a quiet, odorless life. We each own our respective land, so what then? One solution is to engage in private governance. We might strike a deal, and the law of servitudes lets us bind our successors in ownership to the agreement. Alternatively, the state might resolve our dispute via regulation. The government may declare my facility illegal via zoning law 
or air quality regulation, effectively picking a winner between competing interests. The law of nuisance takes a different approach. It also involves picking a winner, but turns the choice over to a court. The court's role, however, is not explicitly regulatory. Rather, it is there to determine whether the complained of act is contrary to someone else's property rights. Stated another way, if my factory is a nuisance, your property rights already preclude its operation. The nuisance action merely clarifies that I violated your property rights and that my property rights did not include the right to use my land in the way I had. In essence, the court is determining whether a boundary has been crossed. But from another perspective, nuisance looks a lot like regulation. A judicial regulator, rather than a politically accountable agency, takes a look at the facts and decides whose interests ought to prevail. We might look at nuisance questions from either view, which complicates the doctrine. Now moving to the problem of nuisance definition. According to the restatement second of torts, quote, a private nuisance is a non-trespassory invasion of another's interest in the private use and enjoyment of land. End quote. What does that mean? Nuisance law is a history of courts trying to come to grips with a fairly vague definition. Judges sometimes invoke the Latin maxim shortened as sic utra. One must use his own rights as not to infringe upon the rights of another. The principle of sic utra precludes use of land so as to injure the property of another. Adjudicating Nuisance and Remedies Although some acts are treated as per se nuisance, typically illegal activities, courts must generally engage in contextual assessments of harm to determine whether a nuisance exists in fact, also referred to as a nuisance per accidens. Nuisance plaintiffs usually seek injunctions. The ongoing harm of the nuisance suggests equitable relief, as damages for past harms would not address those that would follow if the nuisance continues. But because equity involves balancing, courts sometimes decline injunctions or offer more tailored remedies. Now moving to regulatory takings. You will recall that the government has the power to take private property and dedicate it to public uses, broadly construed. But that under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, in order to do so, the government must provide the owner with just compensation. But what if instead of taking private property to use 
in the way the government prefers. The government simply orders the private owner to use their property in the way the government prefers. So long as title remains in the private owner, there has been no taking, right? In that way, the government can get what it wants without having to pay the just compensation the Constitution requires. Courts have long held that some land use regulations that seriously interfere with the rights of property owners can be tantamount to a taking, even if the government does not literally divest the property owners of title. But drawing the line between permissible regulation of land uses and impermissible regulatory takings is a complex task that has divided the Supreme Court for at least a century. Now moving to rules and standards for regulatory takings. The case Pennsylvania Coal establishes a balancing test to determine whether government regulation goes too far and becomes a taking. In Loretto v. Teleprompter Manhattan, CATV Corporation, the court carved out an exception to this flexible, standards-based approach, clarifying that any permanent physical occupation by or under the authorization of the government is a taking as a categorical per se matter. In Loretto, the state statute required residential landlords to permit cable television providers to install equipment on their property to allow provision of television service to tenants upon provision of administratively determined compensation, in the case itself, $1. Justifying its per se rule, the court explained, quote, Property rights in a physical thing have been described as the rights to possess, use, and dispose of it. To the extent that the government permanently occupies physical property, it effectively destroys each of these rights. First, the owner has no right to possess the occupied space himself, and also has no power to exclude the occupier from possession and use of the space. The power to exclude has traditionally been considered one of the most treasured strands in an owner's bundle of property rights. Second, the permanent physical occupation of property forever denies the owner any power to control the use of the property. He not only cannot exclude others, but can make no non-possessory use of the property. Although deprivation of the right to use and obtain a profit from property is not, in every case, independently sufficient to establish a taking, it is clearly relevant. Finally, even though the owner may retain the bare legal right to dispose of the occupied space by transfer or sale, the permanent occupation of that space by a stranger 
will ordinarily empty the right of any value, since the purchaser will also be unable to make any use of the property. End quote. Now moving to nuisance. In Hadachek versus Sebastian, the court found no taking where an ordinance prohibiting brickyards largely destroyed the value of an existing facility. The land was alleged to be worth $800,000 as a brickyard and $60,000 otherwise. Nonetheless, the court deemed it within the state's police power to declare previously lawful activities to be a nuisance and enjoin them. And intellectual property. Property rights may reach intangible things, and the takings clause may apply to these rights. But what about intellectual property? In Ruckelshaus versus Monsanto, the court ruled that to the extent state law recognized a property right in trade secrets, they were protected by the takings clause. The Monsanto plaintiff claimed that disclosure requirements of the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act would destroy its trade secrets. The court held that the absence of reasonable investment-backed expectations precluded some of these claims, concluding that the plaintiff had submitted its data under a regulatory scheme that required eventual disclosure. Exactions The state has broad powers to regulate land use. What if a state regulator agrees to limit regulation power in return for a strip of land? The transaction is voluntary, but had the state just taken the land, it would have had to pay just compensation. Since the government isn't obligated to allow the project, doesn't the offer leave the landowner better off? Or is this a form of extortion? These types of conditional grants of permits or other dispensations under land use regulations are called Exactions. In Nolan versus California Coastal, the court opened the door to closer scrutiny of these exchanges, declaring that permit conditions must serve the same purpose as the reason to withhold permission in the first place. Absent an essential nexus between the condition and the reason for the restriction, the demand is a taking. Nolan involved a permit request to tear down and rebuild a beachfront house. Because the project would reduce views of the ocean, the California Coastal Commission conditioned the permit on the Nolans' granting a public easement on their property to access the beach. The court ruled this condition lacked the requisite nexus, to the extent that the project would impair sight lines to the beach. The state could condition permit approval on ameliorative steps, like size restrictions, 
limits on fencing or provision of a platform to improve the public's view of the beach. But the majority found it quite impossible to understand how a requirement that people already on the public beaches be able to walk across the Nolans' property reduces any obstacles to viewing the beach created by the new house. The outcome of Nolan rested on the majority's conclusion that there was no logical relationship between the condition demanded by the Coastal Commission and the harm it claimed to be regulating, that is, a right to cross the Nolan's land wouldn't improve the public's view of the beach from behind their house. Now moving to zoning. Zoning is a perennial issue for local governments. For most homeowners, their home is their largest asset, and they are exquisitely sensitive to any threats to its value. But threats can mean either the behavior of their neighbors or constraints on their own behavior, setting up a seemingly irresolvable tension. In addition, local governments and would-be developers of new properties have interests of their own. Developers, too, seek to maximize their own property values, including their ability to develop future projects which may lead them to sacrifice the theoretical maximum value of any given parcel. Governments want to protect their authority and their revenues, goals which they try to accomplish in a variety of ways. Zoning is a way of answering the question, what and where do we want the places where we live to be? Our goals are to understand the justifications for and modern varieties of zoning. As you listen, consider how zoning compares to other types of land use controls, including nuisance, private covenants, and the implied warranty of habitability. How zoning works and doesn't work. Zoning's proponents hoped that comprehensive planning would result in a zoning plan that would last into the indefinite future. Reality quickly set in, and municipalities realized that they would need ongoing modification of their zoning codes. New uses had to be included and excluded. Plans had to be revised to account for changes in population and so on. At times, new zoning precludes uses that were previously allowed. The remaining allowed uses may be inappropriate for a particular parcel of land within a zone. Conditions may have changed, making previous zoning inappropriate, or developers may wish to build more than current zoning allows. Zoning authorities may have determined that particular uses are acceptable, but only under specified conditions requiring a more detailed permit process. All these possibilities require some way of addressing unusual conditions and ongoing change. 
When zoning first began, there were a number of existing uses that would be prohibited by new regimes. Zoning authorities expected these to die out naturally, but in fact, they often persisted for decades, in part because they often had local monopolies. A non-conforming use might be the only gas station in a residential neighborhood, for example. Many supporters of zoning wanted to do more to get rid of such uses. Moreover, because zoning often changes, usually in the direction of becoming more restrictive, existing uses that were fine under the previous zoning regime can become newly unlawful. This is especially true when an unanticipating use begins and the rest of the neighbors want to change the zoning in response. But what about the interests of the property owner with the disfavored use, now known as a non-conforming use? This leads us to variances. Variances are individualized decisions about specific parcels, and they raise key structural issues. That is, how can an individualized determination avoid arbitrariness? How should courts review these individualized determinations? Should they defer to zoning boards as much as they do to overall zoning schemes? Missouri law empowers city boards of adjustment. Quote, Where there are practical difficulties or unnecessary hardship in the way of carrying out the strict letter of a zoning ordinance, to vary or modify the application of such ordinance so that the spirit of the ordinance shall be observed, public safety and welfare secured, and substantial justice done. This is from the Missouri Statutes. This type of provision is common across the nation, though there is some state-to-state variation. The basic requirement for a variance in any state are, one, a showing of individualized hardship, and two, a lack of interference with the basic goals of the zoning scheme. Both must be shown. Even substantial hardship is insufficient if granting a variance would do significant harm to the purposes of the zoning. In such a case, only a constitutional challenge or a federal law overriding local zoning could potentially allow the proposed use. Rezoning. Rezoning, more generally, is exactly what it sounds like. As long as it is part of a comprehensive plan, it is usually acceptable, even if it changes the rules substantially and doesn't just exclude specific businesses the way the rezoning in prior non-conforming use cases often do. Spot zoning is another kind of rezoning in which a particular parcel is rezoned rather than being given a variance for which the standard would be much higher. Because it can be used as a variance workaround when the zoning board is on the owner's side, 
Some courts are skeptical of spot zoning. The classic scenario involves a parcel that is zoned to higher use, often single-family residential, but abuts a less restrictive zone. A developer wishes to use the parcel for apartments and argues that the neighborhood is already transitional in character and that another apartment building will be consistent with the overall area. And restrictive covenants. The historical antipathy of English law toward negative easements, that is, the right of a landowner to prevent particular uses of someone else's land, made private ordering over conflicting land uses somewhat difficult. The basic problem is relatively easy to understand. Suppose A pays her neighbor B $1,000 in exchange for a promise that B will use her land only for residential purposes because A does not want to live next door to a busy commercial or industrial facility. Suppose that B then begins to construct a factory on her land. A could sue for breach of contract and obtain appropriate remedies, perhaps including injunctive relief, barring B from building the factory. But now suppose that instead of building a factory, B sells her land to C, who intends to build a factory on the land. C didn't promise A anything, and A gave C no consideration. We might therefore conclude that A is out of luck. She cannot enforce a contract against someone who didn't agree to be bound by it. But if that is our conclusion, there is now a huge obstacle to A and B ever reaching their agreement in the first place. How could A ever trust that her consideration is worth paying if B can deprive A of the benefit of the bargain by selling her B's land? More generally, if a promise to refrain from certain uses will not run with the land, can private parties ever effectively resolve their disputes over competing land uses by agreement? Notwithstanding this concern, English courts were historically quite resistant to enforcing such restrictions against successors to the promisor's property interest. As you've already learned, only a very small number of negative easements were recognized. Furthermore, actions at law seeking the remedy of money damages for breach of a covenant restricting the use of land were available only in quite limited circumstances, in cases involving landlord-tenant relationships. Early American courts were more willing to enforce such covenants outside of the landlord-tenant context, but still required quite strict chains of privity of estate, voluntary transfers of title by written instruments, before they would enforce such covenants by an action for money damages. Now moving to common interest communities. 
like zoning ordinances, the restrictive covenants that burden privately owned land within developments may serve to quite comprehensively regulate the uses of land by members of the community. Such uses of restrictive covenants may allow for centralized private authority to administer and enforce the covenants through a corporation or association constituted from among the property owners in the community. This kind of collective governance of land uses via restrictive covenants is what is referred to as a common interest community. There are three primary types of common interest communities in the United States. The Homeowners Association, or HOA, the Condominium, or Condo, and the Cooperative, or Co-op. State statutes provide for the creation of these legal entities. According to the Community Associations Institute, an international research, education, and advocacy nonprofit organization that promotes and supports common interest communities, there are over 330,000 common interest communities in the United States in 2014, encompassing 26.7 million housing units and 66.7 million residents. What happens if a resident of a common interest community breaches a covenant? How can the governing body of the community, the HOA managers, the condo board, or the co-op board, enforce the rules laid down in the restrictive covenants against breaching community members? One example is that the breach of a covenant to pay money, such as dues and assessments, will serve as an equitable lien on the breaching resident's property in the community. This lien could be foreclosed, or more commonly, the threat of foreclosure and the encumbrance of the lien can be used to leverage payment if and when the resident ever tries to sell her home. The governing body could also sue to recover unpaid sums, but because this involves significant additional expense, it is typically an unattractive option, reserved as a last resort. But what about covenants that restrict use of property in the community, or rules that govern the conduct of residents in the community's property? One approach is that the governing bodies of common interest communities enjoy wide latitude to enforce the restrictions in governing documents. Typically, the governing documents will empower the association or board to levy fines against residents for their breach of such rules of conduct or use. Those fines, like unpaid dues or assessments, can also become an equitable lien on the resident's property if state law and or the declaration so provides. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.